0: I don't care what her genitalia is, because I'm a woman, but I don't care if she's a woman president. I prefer an honest person to be the president.
1: Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hello there, folks. Welcome back. Lions of Liberty. This is the 164th episode of this very program. And you can find the show notes for today's show over at lionsofliberty.com 164. And if you enjoy this program, one way that you can help us out during this holiday season is by shopping through our Amazon affiliate link. This costs you nothing extra to do. Simply click on and bookmark our link at lionsofliberty.com slash Amazon. We really appreciate the help guys. My guest today is the host of the Congressional Dish podcast, a show which, as you might have guessed it, is all about Congress and the bills that they pass. I am pleased to welcome in Miss Jen Briney Jen. Are you ready to roar?
0: I am! Roar! All right, I love
1: this. My <laughs> guest, it's it's a really new thing I'm trying, but my it seems to get my guests pretty hyped up. So, this is going well
0: look oh, good. <laughs> now, Jen, I
1: just want to say, first off, you have, you really do an incredible job with this show. Congressional gist. I'm, I'm really glad that I found it recently and you leave really no stone unturned in uncovering all the little tidbits that get stuffed into all these bills in Congress. And you do something that I'm pretty sure I'm not even sure most congressmen do. And that is actually read these bills. Uh, a daunting task to be sure. And we'll talk about some recent bills in a moment. But first, why don't you just tell us how you got started with all this? What inspired you to become a congressional watchdog and start up the congressional dish?
0: Um, It was actually kind of a long time coming because um, I wasn't political at all when I was younger. But then when we started the Iraq war in 2003, I was living in Germany. And so I kind of got to see the reaction that other countries were having to us. And let's just say it was not good. And um, and so when I got back, I was kind of obsessed with figuring out why that happened. Why did we start the war? What is going on in this government? So I just started paying attention. And every question that I had just led to even more questions. And so it actually became somewhat of an obsession. And I used to be very angry at the Bush administration. But um, over the course of the years, I realized that nothing that is done by any of these presidents could be done without Congress. They actually have the most power, and that's how it was designed. And so um, about, let's see, about 2010, 2011, I started paying a lot more attention to Congress and watching C-SPAN in my free time and watching hearings and... And there was this one day in particular that I was watching um, an energy and funding bill be debated. And Tom Cole of Oklahoma, who's still in there, he successfully added an amendment to that bill that protects secret campaign contributions. And I was watching this on TV and going, there's no way he just did this. And there's no way he just bragged about it. I have to be seeing this wrong. And it's on TV. (laughs) And it's on TV. It's not, it's not in a secret,
1: smoky, dark room or anything.
0: No, and that's the thing. So much of this is done in plain sight. And so um, for only the second time in my life, I opened the congressional record the next day just to check and see if I saw that correctly. And I did. And um, and then I went to the internet because I wanted to see what other people were saying about this. I wanted to see the articles and the blogs and the outrage. And there was nothing, not a single anything. No one had noticed. And so that's when I started to wonder, how often does this happen? So in 2012, I I started paying very close attention to Congress, really looking through the congressional record on a daily basis, and I was finding stuff like this all the time. And that's when I decided that I should do something to get the word out. And I like to hear or watch my information more than I enjoy reading it, which is ironic based on what I do for a living. But um, that's why I decided to do a podcast because I felt like I could – make this an entertaining way to get this news so that people that are like me that aren't necessarily policy wonks but want to know what's in these bills i wanted to make something that people like myself or my sister or my friends would would listen to and i think there's amazing power in being being able to give people information from the congressman's own words so i include a lot of sound clips from hearings and from the house floor and from the senate floor um so that you can hear the congressman say this stuff you don't have to listen to me say well this is what they said like no you can hear them say this crazy stuff for yourself so um that's how the podcast was born and it's here now so so <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, And and like I said, you do an impressive amount of research into each and every bill. You try not to gloss things over. I know you've recently announced a a change in your podcast format to try to at least get to some more of this stuff. And why don't you just touch on that real quick. So for people that are just finding out about you now about what you're going to be doing with the podcast going forward.
0: Yeah. So I've been, I mean, this whole podcast is an experiment because my first year, I basically just said, I'm going to see what's going on in Congress and, um, and tell people about it. And my whole shtick was I was going to read every bill that passed the house of representatives, which I pretty much did. Um, but what I found out is the reputation of do nothing Congress. It's not fair. It's not right. They actually pass a ton of legislation, way more bills and pages than anyone can read. So, um, Last month, yeah, last month in early October, I was trying to get through the July bills. And there were 65 bills that passed, totaling almost 4,000 pages. And it broke me. I was just like, I can't continue with this. This goal of reading every single piece of legislation is kind of crazy at this point. Um, I've been producing Congressional Edition now for three years, reading all the bills. So I think that I'm now ready to use the knowledge that I've gotten in those three years of studying Congress to know kind of what's going on. And so instead of doing bills by or doing episodes by the month and going through 30, 40 bills and everything that's in them, I'm really gonna focus on the bills that matter because I am at that point now that I trust my own instincts. And I think my listeners trust me too, based on their support for this change. But the new episodes are really focusing on one topic or um, you know, like the the last one that I Released a couple days ago is about the new laws from Jan uh, from July, which matter because they you know they're real, <laughs> they're actually governing us now. But each episode is a little bit smaller, um, more focused, and it also gives me the freedom to do something like the anthrax episode, which was you know it came out of a six page bill that really. It passed with no controversy whatsoever, but from that, I found out some really interesting stuff and was able to tell a good story. So that's really the shift that I'm making, is it's still focusing on Congress, but by focusing on Congress, I can focus on so many amazing stories that I didn't even know what was happening, and so I'm really shifting it to um, a regular schedule, which is nice, um, one episode a week, but also um, more focused than it's, than it's been. It's just, this whole thing has been an experiment, you know, like I didn't know what to find in Congress. And, um, so yeah, I'm just trying to, to figure out what's best for the show now, as opposed to figuring out how to focus on every single bill that Congress passes.
1: Yeah. I think podcasting is pretty much an experiment for everyone that, that starts it nowadays. I mean, I just started by getting an interview with somebody, tossing it up and then, a few months later, next thing you know, I'm doing one a week and now we're committed to two a week and uh, we're about to announce doing three a week. So wow. and, and these things just kind of take a whole a life of their own sometimes. And uh, you just kind of refine what that needs to be as you go along. And well, I guess for us, it means more doing more shows apparently. So <laughs>
0: it's true. And it's really helpful. Every time I talk to a podcaster, who's like, I think it's great that you're changing your format. Oh, and I've gotten a lot of support for just like the reason you said, we're all kind of making up this industry as we go. And, um, you know it's it's nice to be able to experiment and change things when they're not working you know you don't have to decide what the show is in the first week and stick with it forever i'm i'm able to let it um you know progress and become something better
1: sure and that's the cool thing about podcasting is there are no rules we're sort of like you said making them up as we go if you're someone that wants to go into tv production and wants to be a producer on a uh, a major network you can either you know go into hour long dramas or half hour sitcoms and and these are all very segmented things that you just have to fit into but if you're going into podcasting there are no rules you can do whatever you want you can do 7 5 minute shows a week you can do one hour long show and everything and anything in between so now and since you mentioned it, uh, what is this anthrax bill that you read? Obviously, you spent an hour talking about it, so I know we can't hit on everything that's in there. But it, your congressional dish is the only place I've heard anything about this bill. And uh, we'll talk about some other stuff that people have heard of in a minute. But why don't you touch on just what this anthrax bill is and how it actually ties in to the anthrax attacks back in 2001, right after
0: 9-11? Sure. Well, um, it all started it was while i was reading those 65 bills in july and um <laughs> one of the rabbit holes i was going on for that rest for that episode was this little six page bill and it basically allows emergency responders who volunteer to be given expiring anthrax vaccines and it was that expiring part that made me go what what are we doing here <laughs> like why are we giving anyone expiring medicine for something like anthrax like who gets anthrax you know so, I started looking into the bill, and it turns out that we have one company that makes all of our anthrax vaccines, and it's been like this since the 1990s. And the anthrax vaccines, ever since the 2001 attacks, we've been stockpiling a ridiculous amount of them. I mean, we have enough for one out of every seven people in the United States. And I don't know a single person who is running to CVS to get an anthrax vaccine. So we have all of this medicine that we've paid for with billions of dollars, and it's all going bad. And so this bill was basically a way to use some of it um, by inoculating civilian emergency responders. Um, and mind you, we already have millions of people in the military that are already um, have taken the anthrax vaccine. So inoculating more people, it's not necessarily going to help us because we already, in my opinion, have plenty. So um, So then that led me down to you know, we have this anthrax vaccine. Why do we have so much of it? Well, because of the 2001 anthrax attacks, which led me to ask, I wonder what happened with those? (laughs) Because I remember right after 9-11 that that was was more scary for me because I didn't know enough to know that our government scares us just because they do. And so it, it freaked me out being from Los Angeles that that could attack me from the mail. You know, I was really far away from the towers. I really wasn't too far away from a mailbox. And so, um, but I never looked into it. And then when I did, I found out that the the case is closed. They said that one scientist did it. It was him. Um, but there's a lot of reasons to find out. Um, there's a lot of le- reasons to conclude that it wasn't him. And, um, and so that's what the episode is, is I just found all of these different things and I put them in and... And um, and then, yeah, and then I found out that our anthrax supplies are um, not secure at all. And so it's actually not a happy episode at all, but it was sure fascinating um, to find out that the anthrax attacks, we don't know who did them. And that's um, disturbing, to say the least.
1: Yeah, and, and we don't know who did them, and something you mention up in the show is that we, we kind of forget about this, but that was actually used as one of the main justifications for the Iraq War. Everyone mm-hmm. talks about these WMDs, but the, the thing Colin Powell was talking about was anthrax. Oh, remember the anthrax? Oh, they've got anthrax, and, and that's one of the main reasons we ended up invading that country, and we can obviously see today the ramifications of that, so this stuff is very important to, uh, to go back and take a look at. We'll, of course, link to that full episode in the show notes for this show. And um so moving along I, this is a one we actually do hear about quite a bit in the debates and this is not in congress yet or it's not passing congress yet but it has been signed and it is floating its way in and that is of course the TPP the good old Trans-Pacific Partnership. So why don't you tell us what you know about this this massive multi-thousand page bill?
0: Yeah. Well, it's not really a bill. It's an international um, treaty. It should be considered a treaty. It's not because we have really shady people in Congress, but it is a treaty because it's between us and 12 other countries and it's supposedly governing international trade, which it does. But the problem is it governs a whole lot more than that. And it was written in almost total secrecy. And so, like you said, it's apparently 6,000 pages. And we're supposed to have this read in the next 90 days. Um, So uh, there's something called fast-track legislation, which gets it out of being voted on as a treaty. Because if it was voted on as a treaty, then it would need two-thirds of the Senate to pass. Well, fast-track legislation means that it only needs half of the Senate um but part of fast track legislation says that we have until groundhog's day to read it so um so yeah there's a lot of people working on looking through it but
1: <laughs> did, did they? Did they choose Groundhog Day for a reason? Because that uh, just seems hilariously ironic to me.
0: Because... <laughs> it does seem ironic, doesn't it? It's so crazy because we've signed so many of these things, and we know what the results are. The results are that giant multinational corporations chase the cheapest labor, and um, and so they take their businesses out of the United States, where they have to pay us at least eight dollars an hour, and they take it to Singapore or Korea or wherever, um, where they can pay people pennies on the dollar. And so we are signing this TPP. With Pacific Rim nations who accept more or accept less in wages than we do, um, so we know that jobs get shipped overseas. It's part of the point of this, and um, and the most disturbing thing is that there's something included in here called the investor-state dispute system, and it's a judicial system that's outside of our own that allows corporations to sue governments if those governments enact laws that affect their profits. And, um, and so that's what people are really concerned about. And that's the chapter that I think I'm going to read for congressional dish. Cause it's what I'm the most concerned about. And, um, the way that Congress is going to vote on this, they can't amend it because of the fast track legislation, which is now law. And so they're either going to vote the whole thing into law or none of it. And so if the investor state dispute system is pretty much what I think it is, <laughs> um, I think that it's probably a bad deal. Um, and in my episode on fast track and the TPP, I've given some examples of different things that have been – like in Canada, there was a town that wanted to ban fracking. And so the fracking company sued Canada because they were going to lose profits. And it's like people are trying to ban fracking because it's dangerous to their health and safety. And yet these companies are still getting tax money because – <laughs> and that's the problem. I don't because know. That's how, to how it works. That. Yeah, I don't know how to finish that sentence. It doesn't make rational sense, but it makes a lot of sense when you have world leaders that are the owners and investors of these multi- of these multinational corporations. And they're governing on behalf of them. And so that's that's really what the TPP is. It's a way of, it's almost, I hate to say it like this because it sounds so like new world order, but it really is like a global governing system that's being set up that us citizens have no part in. And we have to pay attention to this one. We really do.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, like I said, the new world order thing. It's sometimes it's hard to talk about stuff that's really going on without sounding like Alex Jones, crazy conspiracy, fear mongering. The new world order is fast tracking the GBP, Ah, you know. Yeah. And, and But <laughs> I mean, this stuff really is happening, and it really is, you know, on a global scale. So it's not absurd to talk about people that are having some sort of. Global machinations, because they are. It's right there. It's in print. It's in front of us.
0: Yeah, and we know that they crafted this in secret, and it was the, the U.S. trade representative, but of course the people high up in the executive branch were a part of this too, including Hillary Clinton, and because um, she was Secretary of State.
1: Which is so interesting, because now she says that she's not really a fan of it.
0: Yeah, that's because she'll say anything to be president. This is why people don't trust her, because... When she said that, when she said, oh, I had nothing to do with the TPP, I had a sound clip from when I started Congressional Dish in 2012 of her speaking to the president and the vice president and the secretary of labor of um, Singapore, one of the TPP countries where she was saying, this is the most historic agreement we've ever done. (laughs) And it's all these we statements. And she's on a tour, literally going around to all these different countries, pushing for the TPP. And now she's saying that she wants no part of it. She's a liar
1: it's it's almost like she thinks we live in the 1950s where you know you can go to singapore and say something and uh, you know we literally will never hear about it but uh, <laughs> hey hill we have the internet now we're
0: we're going to hear it yeah we have this thing called video <laughs> <It's crazy. laughs> so yeah and so we have these people that and it makes perfect sense because she's a great example of someone who's involved in this it's someone who's taking enormous amounts of money from the banking industry and the pharmaceutical industry and all these multinational corporations to run her campaign to become the most powerful person in the world. And so she's taking money from these people and crafting deals that benefit their businesses. You know, They all want to make sure that businesses that invest in other countries don't get screwed over. And it's like they're so concerned about the businesses being okay that they're forgetting that the citizens that work for these businesses, that you know take their products and expect them to be safe – um, they're not really thinking about us citizens because each one of us individuals, no one, very few of us are able to give her a billion dollars, <laughs> you know, um, but there are other people that can hand over money by the millions so that she can run a $2 billion campaign. And those are the type of people that are crafting this. And when the TPP was being created, we know for a fact that it was people at the top of our government plus corporations who were asked to their input. And um, the people that weren't asked to input, the people that weren't allowed to see the text were the people of the world, but also the people in Congress. We've had so many people in Congress that have taken to the airwaves and said, "By the way, I am a representative of the United States citizens and I can't see the text." So just the whole way it was created is all kinds of shady, and then when you are when you're expected to read 6,000 pages and understand it by February, I mean, this is this is how crazy things become law. They just ram it through and don't give us enough time to give it the attention it deserves.
1: So I'll take it that you don't quite buy Hillary's line, that she's uh, she's funded by all these small donors and that she's <laughs> a woman of the people that she tried to kind of put out there in the last debate.
0: <laughs> no, I don't have to buy that line because I actually have the internet, like we said. <laughs> Let's look up how much money she's taken because last time I checked, it was enormous. But I know that, I mean, she's taken more money than anyone else from the financial industry. And um, yeah, she's just... I get so frustrated when people who lie so often are taken seriously.
1: Sure. I mean, I hear a lot of people say, like, wouldn't it be great to have a woman president? And I say, well, well. I mean, in theory, like, yeah, it would be good to have a society where, like, that's allowable just you know, on its base. Sure. Absolutely. But uh, it's what it's really bad is to have someone as president who's so clearly and blatantly a liar and to elect that person with all this information out there because it basically just proves, hey, you guys can do whatever you want because we're not going to watch you.
0: Yeah. And <laughs> what's beautiful is like, okay, here we go. She has raised over $97 million and 81% of that is from rich people, is from large individual contributions. So it's really easy to find out <laughs> that she's not the person who's collecting small donations. That person's name is Bernie Sanders. And, um, and yeah, and her way of dealing with the fact that he's raising money in a different way than she is, that he doesn't have a super PAC, she does. You know, she just decides to lie and hope that none of us will check. And so I don't care what her genitalia is because I'm a woman, but I don't care if she's a woman president. I prefer an honest person to be the president because we're trusting this person to be the most powerful person in the world. Here we go, Bernie Sanders. He's raised 41 million, so about half of Hillary, and 74% are from small individual contributions. And
1: zero super PACs. I mean, I guess people can start super PACs for anybody. So there might be ones out there that support his policies or in some way, but there there are none directly supporting him, I don't believe.
0: Yeah, there's um his a yeah, there's a political action committee listed on here and he's taken $200, so it's essentially <laughs> nothing. Um yeah, it, compared to Hillary, I mean, if you want someone who's crowdfunding his campaign, That's Bernie Sanders. And she's trying to take that edge away from him by just lying. (laughs) It's just amazing.
1: It certainly is. And Jen, I just want to take one second out from our interview to remind our listeners that they can support our website and our podcasts by shopping through our Amazon affiliate link. You can find that over at lionsofliberty.com slash Amazon. Whether it's gifts for your friends or family for the holidays, or whether you're just buying household supplies, Amazon has absolutely everything in the universe on their website. So if you would like to support our site, help us expand our operation, which we are going to be doing very soon, you can do that by shopping at our Amazon link. Once again, you can find that at lionsofliberty.com slash Amazon. Let's move on to another bill. I recently spoke uh, to John McAfee about this bill, and uh, it's it's CISA, the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act. Now, John McAfee was no fan of this bill, so um, you know, I, I take his word on that as a cybersecurity expert, if nothing else. Yeah. But w- what's actually in this bill? And I mean, it sounds great on the surface. Yeah, we can share more information and prevent cybersecurity. Nobody wants cybersecurity breaches, but um, as as it typically goes with these, uh, the reality is a little bit different than how it's sold to us.
0: Oh yeah. Um, it's being sold to us as something that's protecting our critical infrastructure. So like, um, public utilities that keep your lights on and keep your internet and, um, you know, all of that working. that's the type of thing they're saying that this would protect. But when you read the actual bill, it doesn't do that. It doesn't do that at all. Instead, what it does is it gives immunity to literally every private company on earth if they want to share information with the government. And the information that they're allowed to share, first of all, there's absolutely no repercussions whatsoever if they don't protect your information so they can hand over whatever. But um, the information that they're being told to give is just so amazingly broad. So it's inf- any information that – so let's say there's a cyber attack on – I'll just say Target because they actually did have a some kind of cyber attack. Any information that's stolen by the people who steal things can be turned over to the government. So you're victimized twice. But even worse than that is any information that is threatened to be taken by a cybersecurity threat. So that means all information that the company has because what isn't under a cybersecurity threat if you have access to the internet? So the broadness of that would basically give private companies immunity for turning over anything. And some of the most disturbing parts of the bill Are the ones where they list what the government is allowed to use the information for And short story, it's law enforcement So they'll be able to take this information That they would have needed a warrant before SISA They would be able to take this information turned over by these private companies that you are trusting and they can use it against you in court. So it's not a cybersecurity bill. It's not. And there are things that could be done to protect cybersecurity that were just not in there at all.
1: So how could this work in reality? Is this something where say Facebook could take all of your chats, send them to law enforcement, and then someone can be prosecuted based on based on that kind of information? Yeah. Wow. That doesn't sound that doesn't sound like it helps cybersecurity at all. It actually sounds like it makes us less secure.
0: Oh, absolutely. Because we also have to remember that a lot of the biggest cyber security attacks, like um, there was one just this year on the government where the employee records of I think it was a few million um, government employees, they were taken by God knows who. And so the government isn't exactly the most secure thing in the world either. We've had Edward Snowden, who I support what he did because we needed to know about the NSA campaign. But still, he was able to walk out with all that information in his pocket, as was Chelsea Manning. And so the government isn't exactly secure. So to have them be the ones that, like, we funnel all of the information from every private company um, and trust them for safekeeping, it's not exactly safe there either, you know? Um yeah. It's just a really, really bad bill. I mean, the type of thing that I would want to see from a true cybersecurity bill would not be immunity for private companies. It would be laws for private companies. So for instance, um, right here where I'm sitting in um, a suburb of San Francisco. My utility company is PG&E. It's a private company. And so that private company should be forced to have certain standards of encryption. They should be forced to turn over any information about any cybersecurity threats or attacks that they have happen. And that is not what was going on here. Um, It's another example of our government. Not our government. I don't want to blame the government because it's the individuals controlling the government in Congress. These individuals are so cozy with corporations that their idea is not to make the, the corporations that are, are given the privilege of profiting off of our essential services. It's not to place rules on them, but it's to give them immunity. It's so backwards. And it's, um, it's a symptom of a lot of things that are going wrong in our government right now and why people blame the government for so many things. It's because the people that are controlling it, they're not doing it for us. They're really helping the corporations in just about every bill.
1: Uh, Jen, this is a, a libertarian focused show and you know a lot of my audience is going to be inclined to saying okay private companies can can do what they want they're private companies but in our current sort of setup in our current structure when you have companies that so directly control our lives control the way services are delivered to us control our electricity many of these companies are essentially part of the government so I don't see them uh-huh. as really what you know what in a perfect quote-unquote world a private company might be I see them more as you do I mean they' they're not really private companies and, and they need to be held accountable
0: Absolutely, I mean, I understand when we think about you know free market principles and how those would work you 're thinking about a restaurant or someone who's selling clothes or someone like you with your small business. But there are certain things in this country that we are allowing to be done for a profit, so um, prisons is a good example, the um, utilities is a good example um, there's uh, healthcare <laughs> is a good example. And with the privilege of being able to take money that we are dedicating both in our government and from ourselves for things that are a matter of life and death, to have the privilege of being able to take some of that money and put it in your pocket, there need to be rules on what you do. And um and that is not what we're seeing most of the time. And with the cybersecurity issue in particular, one of the things that disturbed me so much about CISA is that in the the very small section at the very end of the bill that did deal with cybersecurity for critical infrastructure, they're going to do an assessment over whether or not these private companies would have to turn over information about their cybersecurity breaches. And it's like an assessment. How are they not turning that over already? You know, like (laughs) I'm just amazed at how these companies are being coddled. So, yeah, I know libertarians get a little irritated with my like you know, defense of the government sometimes, but there are certain things. I mean, the way I see the government is that it's a tool that we're using collectively to have the basic of our, the basics of our society covered. So it's like, I can't fund a freeway on my own, but I need the freeway to get where I need to go. And, um, you know, firefighters, there are certain parts of this country that did try private firefighters, And when someone's house caught fire and they didn't have their bill paid, they let the house burn down. You know, that's what happens when you allow everything to be done for a profit. So there's certain things, essential government functions is what I call them, that need to be done by the government and they should be done well. And what I'm witnessing and why so many libertarians actually listen to my podcast and agree with me so much is that we are contributing an enormous amount of our paychecks into the government, but then it's being funneled into enormous waste into things that none of us would be supporting and so I think that's where a lot of us can agree that there's there's basics in government that need to be done and my problem is those are being ignored and um, and instead there's so much of our money being funneled into private pockets there's so much corruption and um, and so much of it is coming from Congress because they make all the rules.
1: Absolutely. And Jen, I'm glad you made the distinction earlier when you were saying the government and you kind of stopped yourself and said, well, no, the individuals in government, because I think that's the thing so many people miss, especially, you know, fellow libertarians of mine. They just want to generically blame the government, the government, the government. But what is the government? It's not a separate entity that, you know, came here from another dimension and is is lording over (laughs) us, you know, totally against our will. There are people that are being put into Congress by other human beings, by us individuals. And those people are taking actions. And those are the actions we have to analyze. So I'm glad you make that distinction because we can't act like the government, we might feel out of control at some times because it is so powerful and there are many individuals who are, are taking a lot of power away from the citizens. But at the end of the day, a lot of this is allowed to happen because citizens aren't paying attention, because they aren't caring about who they send to Congress and that's where we have to change things. And it's a it's a logical fact that we can change things if we get enough people to pay attention to this stuff and that's that's why you're doing what you're doing.
0: Absolutely. And I find that a lot of people that blame the government um, are generally younger. So like 40. And I mean, I'm 33. So I still consider myself young. But like I said, I'm 33. I was born in 1982. And when I look at the individuals that are still in Congress, so many of them have been there my entire life. So it feels like nothing ever changes. And it's because we're not firing these people. Um, And that's a big issue because so many of us feel like there's nothing we can do. And it's, it's, it's been like this my whole life. How can it possibly change? And I think that has led my generation and the generations that are coming after me to just not vote. And that's proven in the numbers. We're not voting. So instead, the same people are voting. It's our grandparents and our parents. And so the same people are getting into office year after year after year. Now, that could be taken as a depressing stat, which for 2014 it certainly was. We had almost no turnover in Congress. But the way I'm choosing to see it is that so few of us have voted. We're a giant untapped voting block. And so if we could actually harness our power in numbers, because it's enormous. We're the children of the baby boomers. There's so many of us. If we actually showed up to the ballot box, we could change everything and we could do it quick, especially if we decided to coordinate this at a midterm election, because so few people vote in the midterms. Every time there's a presidential election, so many people think that's their only responsibility is to show up once every four years and vote for the president, which is crazy because that's the one that's the one office that I kind of don't really pay attention to because I have the least amount of control over it. It's controlled by the media who decides who's in the debates, and it's controlled by those horrible parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, who anoint certain people, and we get to choose from the ones that they um, they pick for us. But when it comes to the House of Representatives in particular in Congress, oh my lord, there's four hundred thirty five of them, so. We have an enormous amount of power over that, and that's a big motivation for my podcast is if I can get more people to understand that dynamic, that the House of Representatives controls the money, they write the laws. I mean, we can change everything by focusing on this one part of Congress. And um, it actually gives me enormous amount of hope that these conversations are now able to not be filtered by these big media companies, because I can tell you I'm not being invited on CNN. <laughs> um.
1: <laughs> I, I'm still waiting for mine, too. So we're, we're in the same boat.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, I've talked to Jesse Ventura on RT, but that's the closest I've gotten to the, the big television machine. But so many of us younger people are not watching television anyway. So I actually have enormous amounts of hope in what we can do in the in the future, because the more people are communicating with each other over the Internet and the more, you know, (laughs) the people who have been voting like our grandparents pass away and stop voting. um, I think we can actually turn things around quite quickly if we choose to do so.
1: Yeah, and it seems our generation, we're, we're about the same age, is that... Um, I'm a couple years older, actually. We don't need to talk about that. But um, you know, our generation <laughs> overall is very good at getting fired up, very good about um, you know creating Facebook memes and expressing their feelings on Facebook. But statistically, they're not that good at taking that and, and turning that into action at the voting booth. And I, I'll tell you what, I love my dad. We don't agree on everything politically. He doesn't miss a vote. He's, he's seven years yeah. old, and he does not miss a vote. It doesn't matter if it's city council, Congress. I mean, he goes to the voting booth every... Every single time. And I think he's a lot more indicative of his generation.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, my grandfather is, I think, 91 and he can't see or feel his feet. But come hell or high water, he is voting in every election, as is my grandmother. And um, I think we were lied to in the 1980s because I remember being told so many times that our vote doesn't matter and our vote doesn't count. It's just this one small drop in the ocean. And it's such a vicious lie, but it's worked out so well for these people that were doing the lying, these people that were in in power, because by convincing us to stay home, They've stayed in power for 40 years. It's amazing. And some of these elections when you look at the the data I mean some of these are def- are decided by just a few hundred votes sometimes they're that close and um, and even the ones that aren't. I mean here in all of California, the voting age block between 18 and 22 had an eight percent voter turnout in the 2014 election eight. So that means that 92% of them didn't show up and vote. Can you imagine if they all just decided to show up just once, how differently the election turnout would have been? That's a lot of people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know how to tell people, like, you need to go vote. Because, you know, I'll be honest. I miss elections. I don't vote every single time. Uh, But... you talk about drops in the ocean, you know, one vote is just one drop in the ocean. And and that is true. But the ocean is made up of a lot of drops. And when all those drops of water start changing directions and going a different way, well, the whole ocean goes another way. So yeah, (laughs) we are all a drop, but the drops actually do have an effect when they sort of mass in a certain direction. I don't know how good my ocean analogy is, but well, you You started. I
0: thought that was perfect because it's so true.
1: Jen, the obvious question I think some people might be asking, listening to you is, hey, you know, you're you're 33, three years old, you're of age to run for office and you're you're paying more attention than just about anybody else out there. So does Jen Briney have any plans to run for Congress or just run for elected office at all?
0: So I would love to, you know, um, but the, the so here's what's going to be going against me. I would run without taking any corporate money at all. Um, but I do think it's possible to win if you use the Internet. Um, but also there's a project I'm working on right now for this Sunday's episode where I'm looking at how to get on the ballot in all 50 states, and even with the help of my audience, I'm finding this incredibly hard because each state is so drastically different, and some of them are rigged so badly to not allow independence on the ballot, and California is one of them. Um, In a June election in 2010, so a June election is one that no one shows up at, um, In that June election, they passed a constitutional amendment that changed how we vote for people. And so we have something called a top two primary, which means that in order to get your name on the general election ballot in California, you have to win the primary. You have to be one of the top two people. And that is so stacked against anyone who's not a Democrat or Republican. And so um, I just looked this up yesterday. Before that became law, 66% or so of the people on our ballots in California were Democrats or Republicans, but there were plenty of Libertarians, Greens, parties I've never heard of, and Independents that were able to get onto ballots. In 2012 and 2014, so since that became law, 96% are Democrats or Republicans. It's so stacked against us, and I honestly, I mean, I would have to collect something like 23,000 signatures in order to get my name on the ballot here. so yeah, as much as I would love to get my name on the ballot, I would have to I'd have to win the primary, which is just, I, I don't know. I, as much as I would love to put my money where my mouth is, I'm trying so hard to read these bills and produce this show that it's like, how much can one person do? That said, my husband is super cool. And if a district in a state that is easier to get my name on the ballot in um, were to say, hey, we want you to come here and represent us, I would move and just get myself into the House of Representatives. So I'd be a total carpetbagger, I'm totally fine with that. But I would love to do what I do from the House floor because someone has to. There's so many times that these people are speaking to an empty room and I would love to take these five minute blocks that anyone can claim in the beginning of the day and be like, okay, here's what's in the bills that we're voting on today and do what I do on Congressional Dish. but. Do it to the world. Do it to the actual faces of the people in the room and call them out. Like, I know you took this much money, and therefore this is why I think this is in the bill. No one does this to their faces, and I'd be happy to be the person to do it. Um, But here in California, they've just rigged it against me. It's unbelievable. It's the second hardest it's either the first or the second hardest state to get on the ballot. I still haven't finished my list, but it's um it's a it's a race between California and Washington, which one's rigged it the worst. Yeah,
1: you know, it's, it's interesting, Jen, you bring up the top two system because I actually had someone on my show, Chad Peace of the Independent Voter Project, who I, I took your stance on the issue, but um I didn't even know this before I spoke to him. He was one of the people who got this top two uh system going and he actually believes that the top two system is actually better and, and takes Power away from the parties, and um, I I can't go into the whole explanation right now. I'll link to this episode in the show notes as well. But I, it was a a different take on it that I hadn't heard before. So,
0: well, I mean, I understood the idea behind it because this way in the primaries, everybody gets the same exact ballot, and it was kind of a way to combat the fact that, and this is true in so many states, that the Democratic and Republican Party would pick the candidates for you, and you could only vote if you were declared. Part of their team. So it's like you would you if you were an independent, a true independent, and in a lot of cases, you couldn't even vote in the primary because you had to be a part of one of their clubs right. And you, and you so had to com-
1: register by a certain date to to vote in a certain primary for each party.
0: Exactly, and you had to declare your allegiance to one of them And so to combat that, that was kind of the idea behind it But the results, we now have enough election data to tell us what the results have been And when you go from 66% of the ballot um, slots going to Democrats or Republicans To 96%, 96% in both elections I mean, that's that's a giant difference So to say that it hasn't benefited the the top two parties I mean, the intentions were probably good. In fact, I guarantee you they were. But the results are now making themselves evident. And if you're not a Democrat or a Republican and you don't have their money and their, you know, their power behind you, I don't know how you win a primary. It's just crazy. It's so hard. Sure. And, and
1: when I showed up to vote, um, I think in 2014... And um, I looked at my ballot. There was not a single third party on it. It was just the top two, which was always a Republican and a Democrat, or in some cases, a Democrat and a Democrat. But there sure wasn't a third option out there for, for me, if you weren't someone who was voting in that in that first primary election.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things when people say that they like it because there were certain districts in California that had a Democrat versus a Democrat and there was a Republican versus a Republican. And it's like, but what if you don't like either of the parties? Like so many people, especially in our generation, feel. And so that's one of the things when I tell people you have to vote, they get very frustrated with the fact that they have no one to vote for. And um, it's a legitimate complaint. And so now that I'm looking at all of the different states, um, we have a problem. We really do. It's something that we might want to consider as a nation. Like, should we have a single set of rules, at least for electing federal offices? Because I don't think that it should require 26,000 signatures to get on the ballot in California and 25 signatures to get on the ballot somewhere else. That's ridiculous because it's a district that re- represents the same amount of people. It's done by population. So why should it be so much harder in some states than it is in the other to basically get the same office?
1: Absolutely. Jen, we could go on and on for hours and hours and hours, and maybe I'll ha- just have you back on the show every now and again to update us on, on the stuff that's going on in Congress, because you, you certainly are a wealth of information, and you're doing just an amazing service out there, something that each and every one of our congressmen should be doing, but they're not, and that's informing us about what's in these bills. So keep up the great work, Jen. I'm so glad you're doing this. Before I let you go, why don't we just uh, let you give a run-through of everything, uh, every way people can find the show, help support what you're doing, and uh, you know, help make the congressional dish a, a bigger deal than it is.
0: Um, Well, yes, I do need help with marketing because I do none. And and so my podcast is called Congressional Dish and you can find it at congressionaldish.com, but it's also available in all of the podcast apps. And I actually have two free apps also for Android users that don't, you know, have a podcast app. If you have the free Congressional Dish app for iPhone or Android, the show notes are right there for you because I source everything I say. I'm just... A person. And so I make it very easy for you to check my work. And so you can access that directly from the app. And if you want to talk to me, my favorite social media is Twitter and you can reach me at Jen Briney. That's J-E-N-B-R-I-N-E-Y. All
1: right, Jen Briney, like I said, keep up the great work with Conditional Dish. I personally feel way more informed now that I found your podcast because you are out there spending countless hours actually reading this stuff. It's really a truly phenomenal service you're doing. So keep up the great work, Jen.
0: Uh, thanks so much. It was so nice to meet you.
1: Absolutely. Take care. You too. Wow. And how cool is Jen Briney, guys? And I'm going to keep this short because, you know, we, we went a little long there and that's because she is so chock full of information because this woman does so much research into what is going on in Congress. Uh, her podcast in the couple months since I've discovered it has personally become an absolutely invaluable resource to me. Uh, so I highly, highly recommend you checking out The Congressional Dish, especially now that it is a weekly podcast. It really is phenomenal the amount of research that Jen Briney puts into this. And my god, if we, if, if only our congressmen actually put this kind of research into the bills that they actually sign off on, that they go and vote for, and even more so if only more citizens were paying attention to the fact that they're ignoring these bills, to the fact that these massive bills are coming in there, suffering that human beings... I mean, Jen Briney is is dedicating literally her entire life to this cause, and she cannot even get through all these bills. So how on earth are the congressmen? Because they aren't dedicating nearly as much time, I guarantee, as Jen Briney is into looking at the actual bills that they are out there supporting. I mean, a lot of times these bills are written by other people. They're written by lobbyists, they're written by committees, and most politicians either they don't know the fine details of what's in them or a lot of them just don't care because they're there to sign off on whatever corporate corporatist legislation is pushed through and you know we can put our hands up in the air and say there's nothing we can do there's nothing we can do and there is nothing we can do if we have that attitude if we have that attitude that there's no way to change the system it's all out of our hands blah 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 but it's it's in our hands as much as we want to grab it is, is the real fact of the situation. And it, it, Jen Briney is doing a great service out there by grabbing a hold of this whole thing and ripping it open and actually seeing what is going on inside our government. What could possibly be more important than that, especially with the implications of some of this stuff? I mean, the Trans-Pacific Partnership has he- enormous implications for our personal freedom, for people around the world. It really is uh, an incredibly complex piece of legislation. And if something is really just about free trade, to me, that takes like one piece of paper that says you can all trade freely now. That's what real free trade would be. But clearly something that is thousands and thousands of pages long, probably has a little bit more in there than just yeah, free trade. So please do check out Jen Briney and her fantastic podcast, Congressional Dish. Of course, I hope you'll continue to check out this podcast as well. There are so many ways you can find us. You can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio. You can hear us on the weekends at LibertyTalk.fm every single Saturday and Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can also hear us throughout the week on the Liberty Radio Network. And please, I beg you, if you enjoy what we're doing, don't be a stranger. Come say hi. Come join the conversation. You can tweet to us at Lions of Liberty, you can join us in our private Facebook group. This is the Lions of Liberty Forum. That's what you have to type in your search bar to find it. Uh, we also link to it in the show notes for the show, lionsofliberty.com slash 164. And uh, of course, our regular Facebook page, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty, where we post all our articles, all of our podcasts, please do follow us there as well. But if you want to join the conversation, please come into our private group in the Lions of Liberty Forum. We get a lot of great conversation going in there. You can talk to us, communicate with, uh, you know, Brian McWilliams, our uh, John Otterman, all the different founders, all the different contributors, including many past guests that are there and active in that forum. So please do come on by. This coming Thursday on the podcast will feature the return of our feature,
0: The Felony Report.
1: The Felony Report. That's right, The Felony Report. It's been on hiatus for a little while while John Odermatt pumped out a child. I guess he didn't pump out a child. His lovely wife did. But, uh, you know, he's been tending to babies and and that sort of thing. He's still writing his weekly column, Felony Friday. So be sure to check that out and catch up on everything you've missed if you've just been listening to the podcast. Because he's still doing that weekly column. A very impressive feat that he has done for over two years through a marriage, through a honeymoon, through a baby. Still puts up a weekly column every single week. So please do check out Felony Friday And our podcast version of that, The Felony Report, which will be returning this Thursday. Until then, folks, live long and live free. Head of Editing and Mastering is John Daugherty. Contact johnny53 at gmail.com.